Hello, and welcome to The Pursuits, a podcast about exploring what it means to pursue the greater things in life. My name is Taylor. And my name is Ab. So what does it mean to pursue meaning? It's something that we, we ask ourselves all through life. Imagine an 18-year-old, you, know, you graduate high school, and you're, you're wondering what happens after life. Do I go to college? Do I go right into the workforce? A lot of times as we grow up in high school, we have this set plan that's laid out for, for us. We graduate high school, and we just go off to college because that's what our parents wanted us to do, depending on where in the country you live. But you go to college, and you're 19, you still don't quite know what you want in life. At around 21, you figure out, hey, I'm going to major in X, Y, or Z. I'm going to be a business management major. And you're 21, and you're 22, when you graduate college. You're a senior. You did it. You fulfilled everything that you had wanted to accomplish at that point. But then you graduate college, and then once again, you're asked, well, what do I do now? And I think there are so many young people out there right now, 22, 23, 24-year-olds, who just don't know what they want to do with their life. They're stuck. And they had this idea that going to college and fulfilling that purpose, that meaning, was going to contribute to some sort of self-longing fulfillment. But then they, they realized that it quite doesn't answer the question. And eventually, as they approach life into their 30s and maybe even to their 40s, they still ask themselves, what does it mean to have meaning? It's one of those fundamental questions that guide us as humans. And I'm not just talking about 18-year-olds and 24-year-olds, but all of us throughout life. And I want to take time in this podcast, this episode, to explore what it means to pursue meaning. One of my favorite books is The Alchemist. thought I'd talk about that for a little while. It's a, it's a famous book that explores this very concept, what it means to pursue meaning. You'd be a young boy... And he grows up, and he is lost. He doesn't quite know where to go in life. And the whole concept of the book is he eventually stumbles upon this sort of longing sense of meaning, of purpose. And in the book, finding meaning and finding purpose is metaphorical for happiness. So if you find that meaning, you therein find happiness. It's a complicated question to ask, but at the same time, finding meaning can contribute to so many fulfilling things in life. So what do you think, Adam? What, is it, what does it mean to, to find meaning, and what does it mean to pursue meaning? That's a great question, <clears throat> and I think it's something that for just like the idea of meaning, a lot of people have to define on on their own to some degree meaning is meaning is something that is very relative it's it's uh, in the eyes of the beholder and for a lot of people you you might you might ask yourself what's what's your what's your world and and for for example a lot of people uh, in america the, the world might really consist of, of kind of America. It's all they know. It's all they've ever experienced. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in Europe right now, and for people over here, there's, there's maybe a different concept. Um, and, and maybe 100 years ago, before the advent of radio and newspaper uh, and all these sort of news, you know, you, the world was a much more limited place. So this is often a very relative concept. And the story that I want to tell about this is in this last year, I I was spending some time visiting some concentration camps around, around Germany and specifically visited a couple. And while I was there, I was rereading a book by Viktor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, and one of the things that that Frankel, who's be- gone on to become a very famous psychotherapist, and he has a branch of psychotherapy called logotherapy, and it's around essentially how one uh, how one defines their own meaning. And 
what happened was was Frankel was um, he was a Jew that was living in Vienna, as far as I remember correctly, and he ended up being basically, you know, deported to I think it was four different concentration camps and Auschwitz. Um, I can't remember a couple of the other ones, but he he was in an interesting position to be a a trained psychotherapist and in a concentration camp and experiencing this, but also having somewhat of the the knowledge and the experience to somehow be able to take a step back and view it from the outside and and observe it and study it and be the scientist and the researcher. And Frankel, one of the things that, that he talked about is, you know, essentially that everything can be taken from a man for Frankel, for instance, his, he lost his wife to, to the camps. And for many people in these camps, they lost, they lost everything. They lost all of their clothes, all of, all of their possessions. They lost their family. They lost their, their city, their town. Um, you know, they, they pretty much lost everything. And what Frankel observed in these concentration camps was that everything could be taken from a man, but, but one thing, and that's the last of human freedoms, he called it. And that's to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. And what he noticed and what he observed was that even when everything had been taken away from these people and and life was was boiled down to just a lot of pain and suffering and agony, there were still... Among amongst the people in these camps, there were still some that spent their time comforting others and supporting others and taking care of people, giving away their last piece of bread. And and I think this was this was a very valuable sort of thing that he was able to recognize is actually meaning is is totally, totally subjective to the person. And and for one person uh, life might be awful and, and not worth living. And for another person, life might be incredible. And and even though everything's been taken away from them, they're willing to give away their last piece of, of bread or food. So how is it, you know, Taylor, I guess my question for you, for us, for, for having grown up and, you know, along the West Coast and have had really good, happy, healthy lives, you know, what Frankel observed, and I've observed it too, is, is how is it that some people that are in, you know, they have, they have a car, they have, they have the latest like smartphones, they have, they have video game consoles and they have all this stuff available to them. But, and Frankel observed this too, but a person in the concentration camp might be like who's giving away their last piece of bread and taking care of others and even somehow is able to have a smile on their face, they might feel more, more content and more fulfilled than somebody who's, who's living in our current day with, with everything that we have possible to us. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes when I think of that question, I think of the profound importance of community to a lot of people in the community that you are in you often compare yourselves to the people in that tribe you want to stand out you want to succeed you want your friends your peers your family to look up to you and to see what you're doing as impressive so if you ask the person who gets the expensive car they get the mcmansion and the the biggest house they can get you know, why are they doing that? Is it because they want to be happy themselves? Maybe. But I think it's probably because they want to impress someone. And a lot of it is because they want to be accepted or they want to impress their family. They want to look good in the eyes of their peers. If you have 10 doctors talking to each other and they're trying to fit in with one another, what they are doing to impress one another is going to be different than someone who's in poverty. Than someone who can barely afford to 
to, to live in a very cheap apartment. So when he's 22, is going to try to impress their friends in a different way than someone who is 42. So you look at this example that you gave of someone who is getting simple joy and pleasure by cherishing the moments they have with the people they love, by giving something to someone else in a, in a small, from the unseen eye, insignificant way, but they get happiness out of that because in that group, in that society, in that community, that is looked at as the most important thing that can happen. So, and this is something that you can look at societal differences as well, right? So you, you compare the American standard of living to the Indian standard of living to the, the Chinese standard of living. It, it changes as you go across cultures, right? And that will play a role as well. I suppose I'm particularly looking at the, the American way of looking at things, which has its own class of different questions. And, and you, Adam, right now, you are in Europe. Right? You've explored that, that culture. You've been living there for a while. You've traveled all over the world. What do you think? What's your, your, your input on community and how that plays a role in how we compare each other and how we find meaning in what we do? And does that question change? Does meaning change depending on the people that you associate yourself with? Yeah, I think it's a, it's one of the most important things that we can focus on. Uh, I think a lot of people, myself included, often have a way of when we're, when we're struggling or when we're lost, or maybe when we're, even when we're happy, it's, it's oftentimes because we are somehow lost in, in another person. And one of my favorite quotes is you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with and this sense of this sense of meaning and and alignment with with then purpose how you're finding fulfillment or meaning out of your life i've heard another quote which i really like which is the people the people in your life are your life and so this idea meaning that when the people around you are are happy, fulfilled, they're healthy, they're they're living a good life, then ipso facto you will be happy, healthy, living a good life. When the people around you are are, are sad and angry and frustrated and complaining and, and sick, well there's a good chance that that you might follow as well in that way. And so so the, the question I think becomes, and, and Frankel spoke about this too, when you can when you can sort of dissolve yourself, which which sounds extreme, but I guess the idea is when you can take the focus off of yourself, your your problems, your issues, woe is me and and everything about me and it's all about me. And when you can take that focus off yourself and put it on to others, well, in a, in a way, this sort of grants you grants you a, a freedom from some of this self-absorbed struggle and suffering. You put yourself into others' shoes, and you really get there with them. And if you can really do that, if you can really be there with them and and in their world and in their life you find that your struggles and your your situations seem to dissolve into the background and i think i often throughout my travels have found that when i'm able to i I do this today with, with with the work that i do with people when i can when i can really step aside from the stuff that I I am trying to focus on or I'm doing me, 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 when I can put my focus on the other person across the room or across the phone, my my energy and my emotions and my feelings almost always improve. And I think that's where Taylor, you and I have our relationship has has really flourished because we both are able to really be present with each other when we need each other. And 
and that's allowed us to to actually gain a lot of a lot of meaning and purpose uh and and in a funny way we're we're helping each other so i guess i'd have a question for you of taylor if i if i put a glass on the table a glass of water and i filled it up with water and and I put, you know, I put about half, I filled up half the glass of water. Would you say that that glass was, was half empty or, or half full? How would you answer that question? That's like a question. I feel like we're all like the question we ask when we're like in, in middle school, you know, you always have someone ask you that question. Is it like, is the glass half full is it, or is it half empty? Because half full means positivity and, and half empty means you're looking at world in a negative light and I don't know. That's, that's a good question, right? But at the same time, it's not the question itself that uh, dictates your, your view of life, but it's how you view the question itself, right? So why does looking at life in a positive way matter? Why does life looking at it in a negative way, why does that matter? Right? I think it's just the sort of the emotional awareness that you have of the surrounding things in your life. You know, and you, so kind of what you were talking about, going back a little bit, sort of talking about emotional awareness and empathy. And you and I are talking more and more, and as we've aged, we have been able to understand each other's emotions. We've been able to understand when someone is in pain, when someone is hurting, when someone is going through a struggle and they need support. And you could say that this is a skill that you develop, and it might be, to grow empathy. But a lot of times, it is just learning what it means to struggle yourself to understand the pain someone else might be going through. So if you look at bullies in middle school, for example, uh, they act a certain way to impress their friends, perhaps. And you could say that they are acting that way because they're young and they lack empathy. But then why does that still exist later in life? You see 30-year-olds acting the same way to impress their friends and they hurt someone else in doing so to make themselves feel better. You could say they lack empathy. You could also say someone is going through so much pain that they are unable to see anything else in the world but the way that they feel. You know, the victim uh, victimization, for example, that's, that's a good way of looking at that. These are all different examples of just recognizing your emotions and not seeing someone else's emotions. It goes back to the earlier conversation about pursuing meaning is a sense of comparing yourself to the other people in your group. And if you don't have that empathy, if you don't have that keen emotional awareness of what the other people in your tribe are experiencing then you may not meet them where they, where they need to be met, right? And if someone is succeeding and doing so well in life that they might be so in the moment that they might not understand that the other people in their life are struggling. You know, that sort of depends on how you look at struggle and success. But I'm specifically talking about the emotional well-being of someone's uh, day-to-day life. And if you're not able to be there for a friend, then that friend is going to continue to struggle. So I think empathy plays a huge role. You know, what do you think? Yeah, absolutely. You know, this, this idea of really somehow uh, losing yourself in, in the service of others and how that can bring meaning to you. I think, I think, uh, there's been different stories throughout time where, where, yeah, empathy is this key factor. Uh, there's, there's one example of, you know, the idea of the, the yawn, you know, if you and I are both in a room together and I start yawning, well, you in a very funny sort of way will also, yawn yawning is like contagious if i start laughing and i'm just i'm dying i'm laughing so hard there's a good chance that that also is going to be contagious and you might start laughing with me you don't you might not even know what the joke is but you might just start start you know 
I don't know, after a little while, you just, you're, you're, it's so funny to you how silly I'm being that all of a sudden you're really laughing. And, and the idea is, is that you can see how being around other people can actually be super contagious and, and it can be contagious in a good way and it can be contagious in a, in a bad way. And so if I'm around you and, and again, you're, you have, you're looking at the glass as half empty and that is continuous, that's continuously your mode, your mode operandum, your, 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 the way you operate in this world as glass half empty tailor uh, and you're never laughing and you're just yawning, tired, glass half empty, there's a good chance over time that I am going to be, I'm going to become glass half empty, yawning, uh, tired Adam. And, and so empathy to some degree is a skill. Like you said, you can really develop a skill to, to empath, like you've had enough life experiences where, you know, you've, you've broken your foot. I've broken my foot. Uh, my, my dad passed away. Uh, maybe someday your, your, your father will pass away. And so with enough experience, you can certainly have enough, enough, uh, enough under your belt that you could really empathize with anybody because you've been through a very similar sort of situation. But then there's this also sort of contagious empathy, like yawning or like laughing or like seeing somebody crying. You know, it's like movies, the tear jerkers or the comedies. It's so easy to, to, uh, yeah, cry with a really good, a good movie because somehow just seeing another person crying is, is incredibly contagious. And, and again, to the extent that you can drop down your shields and your defenses and you can allow yourself go with the empathy, it will actually, in a lot of ways, from, from what Viktor Frankl observed in the concentration camps, it'll, it'll basically increase your level of happiness and satisfaction because all of a sudden you've gotten out of your problems and your struggles and your suffering and you've given yourself a purpose and that's to be there and to, to be there with the other person. And that's what Frankel and some of the other, some of the other prisoners in these different camps were, were able to observe is that the people that were able to, to support each other and create a new meaning and Frankel himself, I mean, he lost everything. He lost his family. He lost all of his life's work. His, his books, his works, his journals were all taken and, and gotten rid of, burned. And so he, he could have sat there and said, wow, this, this is, this is terrible. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm giving up. I'm done. But he actually used his training as a psychotherapist to, to take care of and help the people in the camp. And that's while knowing that his wife was just just murdered. And so when yeah. when we can muster up that level of that level of empathy for the people around us, it helps us sort of dissolve our own struggles and suffering. Yeah. What do you think about Yeah, no, I agree with you. And that's sort of hits home the whole point of empathy going with community, sort of this sense of meaning that goes one one in one together. So we've explored what it means to pursue meaning with regards to purpose, and we talked about community, and we talked about how empathy plays a role in that with regards to the community and relationships. But I think a lot of people, you know, who want to listen to what it means to pursue meaning, they're thinking about fulfillment, Right, And you could also say that relationships, they are fulfillment. But I'm sort of thinking of picking a craft, picking a, a skill, something that you look at as life in a sense of this is what I'm doing that's making me happy. Uh, and you and I, we used to be in a book club together, and we kind of still are. We're doing a podcast. <laughs> but one of the books that we first read was Mastery by, by, by Robert Greene. 
And this sort of talked about the classic 10,000 hours uh, concept, where if you do something for 10,000 hours, you become, quote, a master of it, or considered good. And one of the good at something, like you master that craft, you therein find joy and you find satisfaction in that. You find the sense of higher enlightenment that you can only get if you are just truly mastering something. Right? So like for me, doing the medicine thing, you work on it over and over and over again. And then when you are to the point where you've been practicing medicine for 20 years, you were looking at it in a different way than someone who is just a new graduate. Someone who just enters the field and is looking at all the different facets of medicine. But when you've been doing it for such a long time, it becomes a skill that is so natural that you're able to kind of make things work in different ways that you never would have seen at the very beginning. And the uh, Mark Cuban, the Dallas Mavericks coach, he even said at one point that... Uh, not talking about basketball, but in regards to business. He was talking to some kids, I believe, some uh, college students, and with this was with regards to that at least. And he said, do not pursue what makes you happy. Pursue what you're good at. Because if you are good at something, then that is where you find the happiness. If you master a craft, that is where you find the meaning of life. You feel like you can contribute more. You feel like you can offer some kind of guidance. I'm walking on the street. That was a car that just drove by. You can able to contribute to society in a way that no one really else is able to unless you are mastering a craft. So what do you think, Adam? Well, you know, I think there's something there about your ability to, again, it's, it's like this flow state where, you know, you actually, you can imagine a, a surfer or, or somebody who's, who's climbing a mountain uh, or, or they're, you know, they're bouldering or something like that. And, uh, you know, this is, this is so focused, so intentional and and there's such a there's such an energy and intention and focus behind this activity and this this is this is this mastery that you're speaking of that they are in such a a flow that they've almost again sort of lost themselves in the activity they've actually found they've actually found such a uh yeah, it might be a sense of pleasure or it might be a sense of, of fulfillment, but they have, they've really found this, uh, this sort of transcendent purpose in whatever it is that they're doing. I don't know if you've ever seen this, um, this, it was this famous Netflix documentary, uh, Hiro Dreams of Sushi about this Japanese sushi chef. But you know he he has perfected this art of of sushi and yeah yeah you know and and so many people uh, have been to his restaurants and and the the level of mastery and intention there that's required is is quite high and it's a it's a level of discipline and detail that a lot of people would go to but it's something that has almost become like a an art. And so when you're at that level where you really are that focused on what you're doing, because it's so, it's so sort of meaningful to you for some reason, it really touches your soul. Then it's, then it's really something that, that you can, you can gain so much flow, so much peace from and so much power. Yeah, I agree. And you know, in the, in the book, uh, in the book Mastery, they talked about how artists are a good example of the kind of person that achieves this level of flow. He talks about flow a lot in the book. And like Adam talked about, flow is, is getting to that point 
where it is so secondhand that you just get this sort of this deep, deep pleasure. And an artist will spend five, six hours on a painting, and they are so in the moment that they forget to sleep. They, they forget to eat. They are just enjoying themselves so much, so in the moment, that everything else doesn't matter. And not everyone's an artist, but imagine playing a video game, for example. That feeling that you get where you're, you're picking up an Elder Scrolls game, and you're sitting down, and you are playing that game for six, seven hours, and, and before you know it, it's like three in the morning, and... And I'm not saying everyone needs to have played a video game, but I think someone can relate to this. And you've been playing this game, it's three in the morning, and you're like, wow, where did the time go? It's a different kind of feeling, right? You're not mastering a craft, but that feeling that you get of just being mindful and in the moment. And that is something that you get when you just pick a skill, a craft, and you enjoy it so much. I, I, same thing happens to me when I, uh, when I take photos. I love photography. It's something I've always enjoyed. So when I go traveling to a new place, that's something that I pick up and I incorporate. And I will spend, like, I have, like, 16,000 photos or something like that on my phone. It's, like, pretty ridiculous. But I will spend hours just trying to take the best photo I can. And then you take, you spend more time editing that photo and make it a piece of art. And that's something that you can experience if you just put time and energy into something. And it doesn't matter what it is. You can enjoy hiking. You can enjoy walking. You can enjoy anything in life to get this kind of feeling. And, but there's another concept I want to bring up as well. And I think anyone who's taken a, a Psych 101 course has, has recalled, but uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And this is a very uh, fundamental uh, core concept to, to modern psychology. And uh, to recap for, for, for most people who are listening, the very, uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs is sort of the, a pyramid, where at the bottom of the pyramid, you have to meet the essential things of life, uh, food, shelter, water, you need those things to thrive. You move above that, you get to the next level of, of being, right? So that, that typically means that you're, you're, you're getting some kind of other sustenance. You're finding a way to use the things that you've, you've gained, the food and the water, and you're continuing on and living. You're getting a job, right? You're getting some kind of way to, to get income. You are incorporating yourself into some sort of family. You move up the level, you have the bottom layer, and now the things that matter in life to you and me, uh, relationships. And you are able to explore those profound emotional relationships. And as you move up the ladder, you go from relationships to the fourth level, which is finding meaning, finding some kind of joy, um, the mastery kind of stuff that we've been talking about. And then the fifth and final tier of the pyramid is the self-actualization, which not many people reach that. That's sort of someone who Buddha, Jesus, uh, Gandhi, these are the individuals that reach self-actualization. But the whole concept is you need to fulfill the bottom layer of the pyramid before you are able to move up the pyramid. And if something happens in life where, let's say, that you lose a job or you experience a breakup or you somehow are not able to provide food to your home and your family, you move down a step in the pyramid. So you want to get as high as you can, but if you would lose something in the bottom, the pyramid cannot stand and you move down. So these concepts of pursuing meaning, pursuing meaning and pursuing purpose, finding a community, these sort of concepts, unfortunately, cannot exist unless you fill out those bottom bottom tiers of the pyramid. It's sort of this, this thought process that you have to incorporate. And it's, it's different. You might have someone listening to this podcast right now saying, hey man, I want to pursue meaning. I want to master a craft. I want to form beautiful relationships in a community where I find joy and meaning throughout those relationships. But I just can't, man. I can't even, I can't even get food for my kids. I'm struggling day to day and I, I'm, I'm making $12 an hour and, man, I don't know. It's tough for me. How can I even find meaning when I can't even live? And that's, a, that's something you have to consider. How about you, Ann? What do you think? You know, I, I think it's, again, it's all sort of this sort of, there's a bit of relativity here because, again, everything 
everything has a perspective and everything has an angle. You know, I, I, I like to, I like to tell people this story of the farmer and his son and the farmer, farmer had a, a, a horse and he had a little family there on his farm. And, and one day the horse ran off and the, the, the neighbors came over and they said, Oh God, that's terrible. I'm, I'm so sorry. That's really bad luck. And the farmer said, well, yeah, maybe let's see. And then his son, the next day went off to look for the lost horse and he was able to find the horse and the horse had, had gathered up with a group of wild horses. And he was able to bring back this small group of wild horses as well as the lost horse. And the neighbors said, wow, that's incredible. What a, what a stroke of luck. And the farmer said, well, let's maybe, let's see. And then the next day, the son was going about sort of grooming and training some of the horses and and he was he was trying to sort of um train one of the horses and that horse was kind of aggressive and didn't didn't want to be domesticated and and bucked really strongly and threw the sun off the horse and the sun fell and and broke his arm and broke his leg and and the neighbor said, oh, God, how terrible. This is, this is really awful. And again, the farmer said, well, I don't know. Maybe. Let's, let's see. And then the next day, the, the military and the army came to the house and said, you know, hey, we, we're fighting some battles and we're taking, you know, every able-bodied, every able-bodied man that we can get. And we have to draft, you know, anybody we can into the military and and they couldn't take the son because he wasn't wasn't fit to fight and of course again the neighbors said wow what a what a stroke of luck yeah. and so you know the whole the whole idea is is that as you go through life when you're so focused on you know okay is this is this good is this bad is this am i happy about this do i like this do i not like this and for some of us that's totally unconscious you you are raised into a society and a culture that is extremely judgmental and is putting labels on lots of different things uh good bad happy sad um light dark uh these sort of things, uh, man, woman, boy, girl, these cat, dog. I mean, there's, there's labels on everything, but you know, Shakespeare said that nothing is either, is either good nor evil yet thinking makes it so. And the idea here is that to, to a large extent you have within your power and within your control to say, how am I going to feel or look about this situation? Truly, you can look at it in any way and say, it's good, it's bad. And I guess then the question becomes, you know, Taylor, what do you think about this? Why, why would you, if you could choose, if you could really choose to look at it in any way you want, then why would you choose the negative one? Why would you choose the the disempowering, stressful, angry, frustrating way to look at a, a situation instead of instead of a possibly good way to look at it? Yeah, it's complicated though. I think obviously anyone who hears that question is going to say, "I'm going to look at things the positive way." I choose optimism. I choose to look at things that can better my life that it can improve society, that can make my life more worth living. But sometimes people have obstacles. The dad who can't give food to his kids, he can't see anything but that obstacle that's in his way. He is stuck thinking that I'm, I'm out of luck, I'm out of hope. You ask someone who just got dumped. People can take years to get over a breakup or divorce. And you ask them, well, why can't you just look at the positive? This person could not, uh, she did not do this or that. He did not do this or that. They were not right for you, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, when you're heartbroken, all you can think of is, man, it's just not fair. It's not fair. And 
I can't believe that he did this. I can't believe that she did that. And you're stuck in this spiral of just looking at this, this powerful negative emotion when someone has a father that passes away or a mother that dies or a child, God forbid, that dies. Those situations are so profound that it is so easy to just think of the negative. And it's important because it does suck. That is hard to work through. So it's not an easy question to say, why can't I look at the positive? Why can't I look at the optimism? It's there. And I think everyone wants to see those things in life. But sometimes they have to work through stuff. Sometimes it's a process. And sometimes it can take a while. I think the most important thing for someone who's going through depression, someone who's going through a mental health crisis, is to just be willing to work on it. Understand that there's hope. Understand that there is a future out there where you can be happy. It might take time, but it's possible to get there. You just have to work on it. And, you know, some people will wake up in the morning and feel just joy. They feel happiness. They feel gratitude. And they say, man, how come no one can just like always wake up like this and feel this way? Why do people get sad? Why do people not feel this immense joy like I feel? And, you know, I think that is sort of a lack of empathy, too. You go back to the conversation we talked about earlier. You're happy. That's fantastic. Share that joy with someone else. But at the same time, other people are going through stuff. They're struggling. And it might not be easy for them. And that's okay. It doesn't have to be a day fixed to get to where you want to be to look at things in the right way. Your question, Adam, about glass half full versus glass half empty. You know, it's a question to ask yourself. Do you look at life in a positive way? Do you look at life in a negative way? What events are going on in your life that are dictating your decision? Are you more or less a a well-off individual where you've had no trauma in your life? You are happy. You are fed. You are making a sustainable income. Well, you could be naturally positive or negative, and that might be the kind of question to ask yourself. Because if you just look at life in sort of a vindictive way, but you're more or less healthy and you have good relationships in life, that might be the kind of question that is important to shift their perspective into a more positive outlook. But you ask another person that has real barriers to finding happiness in their life, and you ask them, how can you not just choose happiness? Well, it's not easy for them because they're stuck. They're stuck on level one or two on that hierarchy of needs, and they, they're not able to get up there. They're saying, hey, man, I got I to gotta get some food on my table, or I, you know, I've, I've had some real trauma in my life, and I have this PTSD where I wake up and sweat every night just thinking of this thing that happened to me when I was young 10 years ago or two months ago, and they are unable to find a way to reframe the situation. So to kind of wrap up what you just said, Adam, you know, why can't people just look at things in a positive way? I don't think it's easy. But I think the most important skill that you can develop to turn a negative event into something more positive is reframing. Looking at things in a different light. It takes a skill and it's not easy. Adam, you're very good at this, and I think I'm really good at this too, but not everyone is. It takes time to look at an obstacle that is more or less very negative and looking at it in a positive way. This is sort of the whole concept of therapy. A therapist is giving you an objective, non-objective point of view and saying, hey, what you're going through, I can tell it hurts, but let me give you a different way of looking at those events. Someone who goes through a breakup. You could say, hey, this sucks, but let me reframe this for you. He or she was not the person for you because they didn't even want to stay with you. That that kind of thing to hear can just shift someone's outlook. That can just change and alter the way they look at an event. And if they're able to latch on to some kind of optimistic 
reframing of an event, that can be the benefit that they need. You know, so it's a complicated question. Why don't I look at things positively? So I would say, let me help you look at things in a different light. Not just be happy, because happiness is something that might take time for you. But let's look at things just a little bit differently. And over time, let's try to get you to look at that glass half full. Yeah, this is this is really... Honestly, this is such a skill that can be trained. And for a lot of people, it seems like that's just the way I am. But it is, I'll, I'll, I'll submit to you a, in a powerful example here. And that's in the last in the last year and a half, two years, I've been learning some other languages. And again, to, to really illustrate here how relative meaning is, again, you know, I could I could hold uh, an apple up in front of you and say, so what is this? And you would say it's an apple. And someone speaking Spanish would say manzana. And then someone in Germany would say apfel. And so the idea is, is that there's a, there's a different meaning for different things across different cultures. There's a, for for some people, to to eat to eat with a a fork and a spoon and a knife is very bizarre to sit at a, a kitchen table is very bizarre they they eat with chopsticks or they eat with their hands and they sit on the ground and that's how they that's how they do it so so things are things are very relative and this is totally something that you can train the the thing that you don't recognize is that you've already been trained in this from a young age. It's just maybe not exactly how you wish that you were trained in this. And so you have maybe been trained, again, no fault to your own, by your environment, by by your family, by your friends, whoever you've spent the most time with. But the the attitude, the perspective, and and the focus and the mindset that you bring to a situation is is truly a result of whatever sort of conditioning or training you've received since basically almost since the day you were born and and the way i the way i submit this example to you is yeah about a year and a half ago i started to to learn the german language and i was about 25 years old and had no background in German. Uh, I had had a few years of Spanish in high school and then in college. And, and I had had an opportunity to work in Puerto Rico after the hurricanes and practice some Spanish. Uh, while I was, while I was there two years or two and a half years ago after Hurricane Maria and Hurricane Irma. And so I maybe had a little bit of practice with, with the Spanish language but all I heard from people was German's a hard language. It's really difficult. Oh, it's really hard. And you speak English. Why would you, why would you want to learn? Why would you want to learn German? What's like, that's kind of, that's a waste of time. It's, you should learn Spanish. You should learn Chinese. You should learn, you should learn um, Hindi. And, you know, essentially what I, what, what, what was incredible for me this last Wednesday was I was sitting, I was skiing in, in Austria and I was sitting in this gondola with a couple, a couple different pairs of people, a couple different groups. And on the left side was a group of, of Dutch speakers from the Netherlands. They were Dutch. And then on the right was a couple from, uh, from their German speaking country and they're speaking, they're speaking German. And what was incredible to me is that a year and a half ago, I wouldn't have been able to understand almost a single word of either of these groups. I mean, literally I, I, I sat there and couldn't grasp a single word and totally you know, like no idea what's being said, totally foreign. I uh, can't understand a single word. And they're maybe talking about lunch. <laughs> they're talking about, they're talking about the snow and I can't understand it at all. And after the last year and a half of 
of practicing, of training myself, of, of immersing myself around German speakers and being around Germans and German speakers and Swiss and Austrians and so forth. After a year and a half of real submersion training and practice, sitting in that gondola last Wednesday, I could almost understand everything the people on the right were saying and the Dutch people I couldn't understand at all. And it was so easy for me to remember just a year and a half ago, I couldn't understand German at all either. And so the idea is, is that wherever you are today, right now, you might feel as though it's absolutely impossible for you to look at that glass as half full. It definitely almost definitively looks like it's half empty and that's a bummer because you're going to have to go fill it up soon or you stubbed your toe and now your foot hurts or you burnt yourself or you got laid off from your job and that must mean this is a bad thing. If you take the time to really train yourself in this and turn this into a practice, you can absolutely train yourself to see things in a totally different light. It just takes time and immersion. And I think we've all had some sort of experience with this. I mean, one example might be with sports. And Taylor, you've played a lot of sports. There was probably a time where you can remember where you were just terrible at something. And then over a period of time, and it was maybe painful and slow, but over a period of time, you it was totally, totally easy for you. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that this is a good way of looking at it. You know, what it means to reframe and, and look at things as possible, right? Look at how long it takes to get in shape, right? You say sports, but let's talk about fitness for a moment. If you want to get strong, I want to get big muscles. I want to be fit and lean. I want to be a bodybuilder. I want to be a power lifter. It takes time to get there. You know, you can't just go into a gym, work out for a month, and though you might see results, it's a, it's a process. And sometimes if you commit to working out, for example, for a year or two years, those results are profound. But it's not easy to explain that to someone to, to say that I need you to commit to a year of working out. So instead you say, hey, one step at a time. You take a step. You go to the gym one day and then the next day you do it again. And over a year, you'll have looked back and seen all those little steps that you've taken, and it's accumulated in a year, right? Same thing as like looking at uh, negative events in life. You wish you could just tell someone, hey, it's going to be okay. You're going to be fine. You're going to get through this. I know you were hurt, but give it two days, and you're going to be fine. Unfortunately, that's not how it is, and... If someone's really gone through a traumatic event, it takes a long time sometimes to get through stuff. That's why you got to practice at it every single day. Practice that reframing exercise, looking at events in a positive way. There's going to be good days and there's going to be bad days. But over time, those steps are going to lead to a year of practice and work ethic. And that's important. So I'm using the fitness metaphor as a way to looking at trauma, but it's a similar kind of process. You need to exercise your mind to look at things in a different way, just like you would exercise your muscles to get stronger and more fit, more healthy. So I think that's a great way to, to look at things. And just like you would say, the, the glass half full, sometimes it takes a little while to get to the point where you can always see that. Sometimes you need to train professional, to help you look at things that way. Sometimes you need a good friend. But over time, you will see results. You just have to commit to the effort. But yeah, I think that we talked about a lot of great things here today, Adam. What it means to pursue meaning. And we touched on a couple subjects. We went into depth into a lot of other subjects. But overall, I think pursuing meaning is a pretty broad subject that I think a lot of people are going to relate to in a lot of different ways. And I'm sure at some point we might even pick up one of these smaller topics within the big topic that we talked about today. Like I would love to talk more to you about what it means to reframe something. But uh, any, any closing notes that you want to make for us today? 
Well, I'd just like to say a final sort of metaphor for for anybody that it that it helps, and you know they they often look at when kids are learning to walk, you know, just. I mean, they're literally born, they they do not have the ability to walk. It takes them quite some time to even be able to crawl. And, and being able to actually stand up on two feet, I mean, all these things take quite some time. And and we don't remember any of this, you know, we're, we're so, we're so wherever we're at right now. And in February, 2020, we, we, we don't think at all about, about the fact that at one point we, we weren't able to, we weren't even able to brush our teeth. We weren't able to even crawl and we weren't able to walk. The idea is, is that when you're able to, to look at that a little bit, take a step back from it, look at it from a scientific perspective, you know, on average, what they say is it takes children something like 200 tries before they're even able to really stand up and walk. And I think that's an incredible sort of lesson because if, if a child were, were taking those tries and trying to, to get up on two feet and, and on the 10th try or on the 20th try, it fell, it fell again and, and kind of hurt itself and was crying. And then it gave up and it never decided to try again. And it never decided to, to get up and, and try again. And I think that's like for a lot of us, but that, that number of 200, I think is pretty incredible because I guess a question would be what, what would any of us be willing to try 200 times, really practice 200 times without getting so frustrated and so annoyed that we just give up on it. Because that's, that's what we've all done already, that we wouldn't be able to, to walk or stand or even run or jump if we hadn't tried these things many times without, without struggling to do it and then somehow achieving it. And, and the idea here is that to, to an extent, we, we didn't learn that stuff on our own. Our parents and our friends and our grandparents, they actually were there with us. They kind of, kind of helped pick us up when we fell. They helped, they, they role modeled the way we got to watch them walking and we kind of copied it from them. And, and sometimes we fell really hard and it was super sad and devastating and we were crying and they they picked us up and so the idea is is that if you can find somebody in your life that that is willing to be there for you and and support you and help you go on that sort of 200 attempt journey well then you're absolutely going to be up and walking and running and and seeing the world full of positivity and possibilities but just like Taylor and I have, have found each other and we, we really support each other through thick and thin and we, we know that the other person will absolutely be there to, to pick us up and dust us off. And I think we all need to, to find that person that we can, we, can really, we can really be honest with and we can really uh, know that they will help pick us up because the mind and the brain are, are, they get stuck in some of these patterns. And so when, when you felt like, wow, the world, the world is, is raining and pouring on me and everything is going, going wrong and things are, things are terrible. It's very hard to get out of that, that sort of spiral by yourself. But when you can, when you can elicit the help and the support of another person, it's very easy for them to see that that's not true and also for them to to snap you out of it and and break you out of that that habit loop that pattern in your brain. And so, you know, I guess I guess the question would be who could you who could you go to and start to develop that sort of powerful powerful support relationship with because that's something I think for for Taylor and I that has absolutely made us step by step more and more positive and, and invincible in the face of, of really challenging moments. 
where where life decided to kind of punch us in the face and knock us down but but nowadays taylor and i don't spend too much time down we we pretty much are, are getting up pretty quickly so so a good question for those listening is who can you go to and who do you go to to help bring you up and how can you go about starting your 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 training process here so you can really start to look at this as a game and turn it into a practice and, and really make this into something that is easy for you. Beautiful, brother. I love it. I love it. And ask us these questions, guys. If there's something that you want to hear, if you want us to talk about something, let us know. You can find us on Instagram at uh, Tay Eisenberg, T-A-Y-I-S-E-N-B-U-R-G, and Adam at Pursuit of Underscore Better. And we can't wait to hear from you guys. We can't wait to talk about this more. And thank you, Adam, as always. Thank you, Taylor. And thank you, everyone, for listening. And be well.